Healthcare Today with Dr. Lewis Myers, a weekly exploration of health and wellness topics affecting Vermonters. Brought to you in part by Westview Meadows and the Gary Residence, retirement living the way it's meant to be. Age Well Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Northfield Pharmacy, pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. Northfieldpharmacy.com And Kinney Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com, employee owned and locally committed. Your participation is encouraged. Call with your questions, 244-1777 or 877-291-8255. Good afternoon from snowy Vermont, uh, snowy and cold Vermont. This is Dr. Lewis Myers and we're, you're listening to Healthcare Today. We're going to be talking actually about a hot topic today and that is viruses. Viruses are one of the simplest life forms and we're here long before humans walked the earth. Viruses, particularly pathogenic viruses, have caused great human suffering and death. But beginning in the 1950s through, vir- through vaccines and other public health measures, it seemed as if we were beginning to win the battle against them. The deadly smallpox virus was totally eliminated from the world, and polio is nearly gone. Measles, mumps, and rubella are now well-controlled in developed countries, which have high vaccine uptakes. But cold viruses and flu, influenza remain yearly problems. And then, of course, in the 1980s, we saw the AIDS epidemic take millions of lives around the world and still is doing so. Hepatitis C continues to be widespread, and now, of course, there is COVID. We're going to have two guests today talking with us about viruses. In the first half hour, we're going to be talking with Dr. Mohseni Sajadi, from the, uh, who's a professor of medicine at the University of Maryland School of Medicine and uh, works at the Institute of Human Virology in Baltimore, and he's on the phone with us from Baltimore. In the second half hour, we'll be talking with Ms. Gina Collada, who's the senior science writer for the New York Times and has recently written a fascinating article on how the uh, scientists came together to put together the mRNA virus vaccines as rapidly as they did. But for, And, of course, we welcome your calls during the hour. We're at 802-244-1777. If you have any questions today for our guests, Dr. Sajadi or Ms. Collada, please give us a call, and we'll, we'd like to hear your questions. So I want to introduce Dr. Sajadi, who is on the line with us from Baltimore. Dr. Sajadi uh, went to co- graduate from college at the University of Virginia. He also took coursework at uh, in Oxford University. In England, he got his MD degree from the University of Maryland School of Medicine, did his internship in internal medicine at Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami, Florida. He did his residency in internal medicine at Robert Wood Johnson uh, School of Medicine and Dentistry in New Jersey. He did his fellowship in infectious diseases at the University of Maryland School of Medicine and did a postdoctoral fellowship at the Institute of Human Virology. And I should mention the Human Virology, uh, which is one of the premier uh, institutions in the United States and the world for uh, research and treatment of viruses was founded and is still directed by Dr. Robert Gallo, who you may remember uh, discovered the HIV virus, which causes AIDS. So, Dr. Sajadi, after that long introduction, welcome. Hi, and uh, yeah, I'm glad to be on, and uh, I look forward to the conversation. Well, I think because, of course, we're uh, uh, speaking to our general audience here in Vermont, and 
Um, it may sound very basic, but I thought I would just ask you to describe to us what is a virus and how does it differ from, say, a bacteria or a fungus? Yeah, so uh, I think maybe it's we could start by talking about bacteria maybe and then we can talk about how they're different than viruses. I mean, bacteria are, are, are small um, unicellular organisms that um, can replicate and, and, and a lot of times cause disease. And um, so when these were first discovered uh, in, in the um, 1800s, um, there was ways to study uh, bacteria, then there was uh, ways to culture it, and, and so these were known and, and, and were being kind of worked on. And then came along uh, viruses, and, and this kind of caused a big uh, confusion, I think, for a number of years in, in, in the scientific community because these were so small, they were, uh, you, you couldn't filter them. So with, with bacteria, you could filter them into, uh, on a substance, and you could still grow, grow them out and cause disease in animals and humans. But viruses would kind of pass through the filter, and so it, it was a great mystery as to why and how these things uh, existed. What, what, what they were, initially, it was just thought to be a, uh, a, a kind of a fluid that was potentially infectious and, and we, we basically through uh, 50, 60, 70 years, we've learned that um, they are um, uh, very small uh, microorganisms that can replicate only when in, um, in uh, cells or other organisms. And this is opposed to bacteria where you can just take them and put them on like a Petri dish and, and give them some nutrients and you can grow them. But viruses actually require uh, a living cell to complete their life cycle. And that's a big distinguishing uh, feature, I think, between viruses, bacteria, and other um, microorganisms. Let me ask you this. Is from a historical perspective, we know the great flu epidemic of 1917-1918. Did scientists and, and doctors at that time realize that they were dealing with a virus? Um, that um, That's an interesting question. Um, I, I think there were – I mean, the first viruses were – were discovered in the late 1800s, uh, close to the turn of the century. It was a, the first one, really, was a, one in plants, actually, tobacco mosaic virus. I believe that by that point they, um, and then yellow fever um, was the first one that was demonstrated in humans, and that was actually Walter Reed in the early 1900s. So I think by that time, in 1918, they would have known, and uh, that it was uh, uh, that it was caused by virus. The story itself of Walter Reed, and, and you mentioned yellow fever, is fascinating. Yellow fever was, and in some parts of the world still is, a major pathogen affecting people. Uh, but uh, tell us a little bit, if you if you can, about Walter Reed and, and how he discovered that virus and how he came up with a way to treat it or prevent it. Yeah, so uh, certainly this was, um, you know, um, uh he did a lot of his work in uh, Central America, and actually, in that time, the yellow fever—you—you—you um, you, you had it, uh, you know, uh, South America, Central America, all the way into the Americas. I think all the way up to Philadelphia, if I remember correctly. Um, so this was an endemic disease um, uh, through the Americas, and it, it is um, uh, mosquito-borne. Um, but he was actually, uh, and, and like I said, the the, the studies in, in terms of 
um, characterizing viruses and figuring out uh, what they were and how they uh, uh, caused infection had just been uh, had just been um, started when when he got to his work and he was actually able to show um, that uh, this yellow fever was actually caused by a, a something that was filterable. Um, uh, or something that was not filterable. In other words, it passed through the filter. It was not a bacteria, and um, it could cause uh, these you know, horrible diseases in, in people, including fever. Um, uh, you get uh, back pain and, and, and in severe cases, death. Um, so, and, uh, and and that, like you mentioned, that led to one of the. Um, uh, for, it wasn't the, actually the first vaccine against the virus. Actually, Louis Pasteur. Um, uh, had a rabies virus vaccine he, we, even before we knew what viruses were. Um, and, of course, um, the smallpox, you mentioned smallpox vaccine, those were all uh, earlier. Um, and even before then, there was something called uh, uh, inoculation or variolation, and it's been going on for hundreds of years where people were basically vaccinating uh, against smallpox. But it is kind of interesting because you, you had – it sometimes reminds me of the, even what we're seeing now with uh, vaccine hesitancy. Um, and you had the same thing with the smallpox back then. It was a disease that uh, caused mortality rates of up 20 to 30%. Uh, so of those infected could actually die. And you had a technique of, of vaccination, which, 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 which was actually uh, caused death in 2 to 3% of people. But in those that it didn't, it actually protected 100% um, almost for life. And um, so you had something that was at least 10 times better than uh, getting the, the actual virus. And when it was epidemic, it was a big problem. Uh, but there were still people back then who were hesitant uh, in terms of uh, getting this uh, vaccination. And that was probably the very first one. And uh, smallpox devastated communities, uh, uh, yeah. entire communities, and, and in some cases changed the, the course of country's history. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, unfortunately, uh, in terms of Native American population in the U.S., that was the main driver, I think, over, uh, it's been estimated, 90 to 95 percent of deaths were um, because of uh, smallpox. And that was because they did not have this disease uh, in the Americas. uh, And it was an old world disease in Europe and Asia. And it was introduced um, uh, uh, of course, unknowingly at first by the by the Americans, and then and, and, uh, I guess there's some history saying that uh, some, at, at least in the 1800s, it may have actually been uh, used as a uh, as a biological warfare against the Indians Weaponized. as well. Let's talk about the work a little bit about your institute, uh, the Institute of Human Virology, and the work you're doing there on some of the and have done on some of the viruses. Tell us a little bit about the institute itself. Sure. So the institute was, um, uh, I believe, it was founded in 1995 by, as you mentioned, uh, Dr. Robert Gallo, who worked at um, at the NIH before he um, came here and started the institute. And I think it's the first uh, virology institute in in the U.S., if not the world. But he, of course, was a pioneer in uh, in actually finding uh, uh, several viruses, not, not only HIV, but uh, a virus called HTLV1. And um, he also discovered something called interleukin-2, which, and a system for culturing uh, retroviruses, which, and HIV. So he did a lot of um, uh, pioneering work in HIV, and also developed the first um, blood test for HIV, 
which led to um, you know mass screening. This is in the, in the 80s in the U.S. So where we could actually screen our blood supply and make make sure it's clean. So he he uh, he did a lot of work and uh, he started this um, institute in order to bring together basic science, um, epidemiology, and uh, clinical research all under kind of one roof um, for viruses and especially HIV. Um, I work, um, I started with working with HIV and um, my main focus is on antibodies. And I think by this point, um, everyone has kind of heard about antibodies and knows what they are, at least has some idea. Um, So we work on understanding immune responses um, to different viral diseases and also developing immune therapies and things like you might have heard of like the monoclonal therapies um, for COVID-19. So we're, we're active in that as well uh, in, in terms of my lab. There are two so, viruses uh, which are practically endemic. We're not, I won't say endemic, pandemic perhaps, uh, uh, HIV and hepatitis C. And it's been very difficult to find vaccines for those. We now have treatments for them which are effective, but not a preventative vaccine. Why has it been so difficult to find vaccines? What's different about HIV and hepatitis C in terms of their basic structure that makes it so tough? Yeah, so, I mean, HIV has been this puzzle for, um, you know, since the 80s, and it has been the one, um, I would say, viral disease that's been resistant to um you know, any kind of successful vaccination or any kind of um, cure. Okay, so we can actually write currently and since the mid-90s, we've had very good medicines for HIV uh, where we can treat patients, but um, we can't get rid of the disease. And the reason um, that is, is for HIV specifically is that part of its life cycle, when, once it enters, and like we mentioned, viruses need the, um, a cell and uh, a living cell to, to replicate so once HIV gets into the cell, it actually um, um, its method of reproduction is to make and integrate into our into the cell's DNA. So it becomes sort of part of the body, and um, and this makes it very very uh, difficult uh, to kind of uh, eradicate because you'd have to identify um, uh, cells that have the virus, even though they may not be making virus. Um, and it's, it's, it's proven to be very difficult. It's really um, been the holy grail, and I know uh, Dr. Gallo and, and all of his associates uh, have tried so many different uh, trials of vaccines. Um, the vaccine, vaccine uh, viruses also have a tendency, and I think if you could maybe talk a little bit about RNA viruses, they have a tendency to, to mutate quite a bit, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, so this goes, you know, goes back to evolution, and um, and uh, viruses, uh, like any living organism, um, are uh, are susceptible to to pressure. To to in this case, if a virus is in in a, in a person, uh, the person's immune system is trying every trick it has in in order to um, suppress and kill and uh, get rid of the viral infection. Um, so the virus, when it reproduces, it has, um, it, it, it can alter its genetics, um, uh, when it reproduces. So, um, and, and there's something, a concept called promiscuity, like how, how, uh, how much it, it can alter each, each time it, um, undergoes, um, a reproduction. 
So for when we mention HIV virus, it's it's one of the most um, promiscuous viruses in terms of uh, the number of uh, mutations that can be generated. Uh, even every day, in an infected person, you just have you have many new uh, swarms and species that are uh, kind of produced that look different than what was just uh, there a day ago. Um, so, uh, and, and this is um, you know, particularly true, uh, like I said, for HIV virus and some RNA viruses. Now, for COVID, um, or the SARS coronavirus, too, that causes COVID, uh, it, it doesn't mutate as much um, as, as, as HIV does, but the fact that there are so many um, people infected in the world, it just gives it so many chances um, to, to mutate. And also, um, uh, we've also learned that in people who are immune suppressed who cannot, um, you know, in the average person who, who gets COVID, they can, um, you know, clear the infection, or at least to clear the virus uh, in a relatively short period of time, in a week or so. But someone's immune compromised, uh, they can end up being infected for months. And in, in a lot of those uh, people, it's been noted that uh, uh, that is a chance for the virus actually to uh, mutate and, and, and uh and to acquire new mutations. And I think that's one of the uh, thinking of how this Omicron uh, variant came about. You mentioned uh, monoclonal antibodies. Um, tell us what those are and, and, and if you've done any work on that, what what you're looking at. Yeah, so, yeah, monoclonal. So an, antibodies in general, um, so once our body sees uh, uh, a foreign, let's say, a bacteria, virus, or a fungus, uh, essentially, all of these things are made up of proteins. So whenever our body sees a, a protein uh, that is not itself, it starts um, uh, figuring out how to uh, respond to it. Uh, one of the ways it responds is making antibodies. And, and these are special proteins, um, if you can think of a, a, like a locking key mechanism. So it, it looks at the protein and it figures out uh, an antibody that can hook onto it and once it does that, it can uh, that that foreign virus or bacteria is tagged, and it can be immediately recognized by cells that can uh, pick up the tagged material. Or it by just tagging that virus, it can also prevent it from doing its uh, from attaching to a new cell and causing new infection. So there's a variety of ways these antibodies can work. Um, and what a monoclonal antibody is is that you, you've taken one such antibody and you've figured out what it is, what it attaches to, and if it works or not, and you've decided you can mass produce it. Um, and in essence, these are the monoclonals that were for COVID are, are, are just that. These were isolated um, from humans that were infected. Um, in, at the beginning, was people were infected in the previous epidemic, the SARS epidemic, um, so we have monoclonals from there, and we have monoclonals from people uh, infected in the last couple of years. And if you give these to people early enough in their disease, um, it's been shown to prevent uh, hospitalizations and, and death. And but as, really as the virus the continues to mutate, which you talked about, we, we've now hearing that the monoclonal antibodies don't work as well against Omicron. Is that true? That is, Yeah, that is absolutely true. Most of the monoclonals, including some that we've, we had in our labs um, uh, have lost their activity against this new new variant. Um, so that's you know the, you know and and this can happen with 
uh, unfortunately, with antibodies, and it can also happen with medications, um, where, in, for example, in, in a whole different field, but, uh, you know, uh, antibacterials like antibiotics um, can uh, stop working against bacteria as well when they gain new mutations. It's really kind of, for those people who follow it like football, it's kind of like a football game. The offense comes out, the defense adapts, then the offense has to adapt, and the defense has to adapt, and it's an ongoing uh, work in progress, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it always is. Even, you know, we, we talk about uh, antibacterials. Of course, penicillin was one of the very first um, antibiotics, and um, almost within a decade after that, it started. the bacteria started getting resistance, and so then you had ampicillin. And that worked for a couple of years, and then you started getting more resi- more resistant bacteria, and then so they had, you know, they had to come up with new um, new medications like augmentin uh, that you may have heard of, uh, or, or moxicillin, and, and that were combined with a different kind of um, uh, sulbactam or something like that. So yeah, it, it's always um, in our field, it's 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 sort of like an arms race, I guess. <laughs> yeah, an arms race. Yeah. It, in the few minutes we have left. What do you see as some of the most exciting potential developments in your lab and in, in your field? Um, so in my, my lab, is the major focus right now is um, immunotherapeutics like monoclonal antibodies against HIV. And um, so as we mentioned, the vaccine, um, look, there actually there's a lot of new concepts that are being worked on um, for HIV, not, my my feeling is we will have a vaccine eventually. Um, but the idea of the monoclonals are, in the meantime, we you know we have um, we've seen this arms race in, in going on in people. In terms of we can take one person, and if we look at their antibodies over five, ten, fifteen years, they actually and it, with HIV they they start developing a small portion of these patients incredible antibodies that can wipe out most. HIV, like 99% uh, of the strains found in the, uh, across the planet. And so we're trying to harness this, um, these monoclonals uh, to either be used as a, a therapeutic in terms of treating a patient or helping uh, potentially cure. And we said that, uh, mentioned earlier, that cure is a really tall order. Um, or potentially using the same uh, monoclonals as um, a preventive so the idea of a vaccine is you teach the body how to make an antibody. Uh, the idea of uh, immunotherapeutic is, well, we have the antibody already. We just have to figure out how to give it in a, in a long enough uh, duration, uh, and then the body doesn't even have to figure out anything. Um, we're basically giving the preformed product. So that's one thing um, we've been spending a lot of time trying to uh, work out and understand and uh, to do. I know that uh, this may not... Be, be in your area as much more of a societal, political thing, but I mean, how do we afford monoclonal antibodies? It sounds like they're very specific treatments, and they'd have to be scaled up massively to to make a, a significant difference in our country or the world. How do we do that? Yeah, so I mean, that's a really good question. I I think whenever a new technology comes out, whether it's a new drug or or uh, therapy. The price tag is always mind-boggling, right? Um, but I think there's always going to be ways, uh, especially with time and mass production, to bring bring those costs down. Um, one way is to make them, for example, more potent. 
So if you have, if you're using 10 times less, that that, that would cost the cost, cut the cost by 10 tenfold, right? Um, so that's there's ways we can improve that. There's ways to improve production, but I would also say that science is also looking at ways to improve delivery. For example, um, in, in, instead of uh, injecting monoclonal, you might inject a cell that can actually produce that that antibody. In that case, uh, the body would be doing the production part. It wouldn't be in the factory. Um, or you. So, so there's many different ways I think to to tackle it, and I think we'll see with the advance in, in technology, and uh, I, I think you'll see new new ways of uh, bringing down costs and, and tackling the same problem. Well, I think that with uh, viruses and and uh, that you every day you go to work must be must be a challenge. You're taking on a challenge every single day you go to work uh, on the front lines of finding treatments and even cures, um, and all of the, the knowledge that you've gained through the years. Uh, can I, like when you, when something like COVID all of a sudden appears, do you switch your line of research to focus on that? Or how, We just have a yeah. minute left, but I'm curious if, you, if you've been working on HIV, do they ask you to now come and work on COVID since that's uh, such a pressing need? Yeah, well, I mean, um, so we did, we did, and, and, I would say that uh, so we of course if there's a new um, you know there's a new disease that is a virus that uh, if you think you can contribute in in some way you're going to try and and that's what we did we we switched and it was probably two two things um, you know the university was closed for for the good part of a year except if you uh, if you're working on a COVID project and um, so you know our lab was was fortunate we're going to have to. We, I apologize. Yeah, I We're going to have to stop in 10 seconds. But okay. I will tell you that uh, Ms. Collada is going to talk about this in, in the next uh, half hour. Uh, I want to thank you and thank you for all the work you're doing at the, Maryland, at the Institute of Human Virology. Keep on. Dr. Lewis Myers, well, welcome back for the second half of uh, Healthcare Today, talking about viruses. And again, my thanks to Dr. Sajadi for being with us in the first uh, half hour. Um, we're going to welcome now Ms. Gina Collada, who's on the line with us from New York City. Um, and I'm very honored to have her here. I've been reading her articles for many, many years. Ms. Collada is the senior science reporter at the New York Times, focusing on science and medicine. She does have a science background. She studied molecular biology at MIT for one and a half years and has a master's degree in applied mathematics from the University of Maryland. She is a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist. Uh, who has been at the New York Times since 1987. She has written nine books and has lectured in Europe and Asia. Uh, when she is not uh, uh, doing her uh, professional reporting, uh, she enjoys uh, taking long-distance runs and 100-mile and bike rides. Such a slacker. We welcome Miss uh, Gina Collada. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Can I just correct something? First of all, of I haven't course. done a 100-mile bike ride for several years, 
and my four little grandkids live with us, and I don't have time to train for really long runs anymore either. So not, I'm more of a slacker than you think. Also, I live in Princeton, and I haven't been in my office in New York since oh. March of 2020 when they closed. We thought that they were closing. Well, I know you also lecture at Princeton, and um, Princeton's a lovely place to to, uh, to go through COVID uh um, well, it's not bad. I don't mind working at home, but not I bad at all. feel like I'll never, see, I'll never see my colleagues again. And that's an issue, and, and that, and we're going to talk about that because you recently wrote a, a co-authored a terrific article, long form article in the New York Times, on looking at the how the science came, and scientists came together during COVID uh, to produce the mRNA vaccines by Pfizer and Moderna, which have been so effective. And, and surely save so many thousands, perhaps millions of lives. Um, it's a fascinating story because it really brings together the human aspect along with the science. Um, can you sort of begin to recap that article a little bit for us? Uh, well, what was interesting to us when we started looking into it was, this is my colleague Ben Moeller and I, was that people have said, oh, these vaccines were produced so fast. A lot of people said, I don't trust them. It was too fast. Nothing can happen that fast. And we looked into it, and we discovered that actually the work that led to those vaccines, they weren't, no one was thinking of coronaviruses. It's a lot of basic research, and a lot of people that were doing it were really starting out because they wanted to find a vaccine against HIV. And that these a lot of people were inspired, in fact, to become virologists because they saw the devastation that HIV was wreaking on on every on lots of people in this country and elsewhere. I might just so, tell you that in the first half hour, we did have a chance to talk to Dr. Sajadi about the work he'd been doing and, and of course, Robert Gallo uh, on HIV vaccines. And you're absolutely right. It, it uh, has brought together some of the best minds and energy in the field. Absolutely. And actually, a lot of this work was um, generated at this place called the Vaccine Research Center. And the Vaccine Research Center is part of the National Institutes of Health. And the way it got started was... Um, when Clinton was president, he called Dr. Fauci in to, get, to brief him on what was happening with HIV. And he turned to Fauci and said, and he turned um, yeah, to Fauci and he said, you know, you guys have known about HIV for a while now. How come you don't have a vaccine? So Dr. Fauci said, well, you know, we everybody's working in their own little silos and there's no coordination. It would really help if we had one place where everybody could come together and collaborate and plan things. And he said, so you mean like, you know, someplace like at the, like at the NIH. So Fauci turned to, Luke, uh, to Panetta, who was there, and he said, you think we could do that? And Panetta said, you're the president of the United States. You can do whatever the hell you want. So... Um, Fauci thought that Clinton was just flattering him. But a few months later, he gets his call saying, um, Clinton's going to give a, a commencement talk at Morgan State University, and he wants to mention this vaccine research center. Uh, can you give him a, a little bit, a few words he could say? And Fauci was shocked, but he said once Clinton mentioned that we're, they're doing it, all of a sudden the money was there, they could hire people, and they could get going. So the Vaccine Research Center really had its 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 mission 
was to produce a vaccine against HIV. Along the way, it turned it turned out it's still it's been going on for like more than 20 years. Very very difficult project. As one person said to me, you know, there's like it has that virus has like every trick in the world to sort of stop you from make, from getting a vaccine that works. And if we could figure out how to get a vaccine against HIV, we could we solve the problem of vaccines for like every disease that exists because every trick is there in that in that HIV virus. But along the way, as they were trying to understand how do you do this, they started looking at other viruses saying, can we get some clues? Will this help us? Will this help us? And what happened was there was decades of basic science research with no thought of a coronavirus pandemic, no thought of let's make a vaccine against the coronavirus. So everything was in place, including a big clinical trials network to test vaccines really quickly and efficiently, which was developed for testing HIV vaccines. That could be just they could turn on a dime and start testing these vaccines. So when people say they were developed so quickly, no, they were developed over, they could not have been done without about 20 years of basic science with no thought of this application, along with a company, some companies in Canada that were without thinking about COVID, without thinking even about vaccines, we're developing ways to wrap things like DNA, RNA, proteins in little coats, little little blankets of lipids, of fats. So if you put them into somebody's bloodstream, they would not be destroyed immediately. They needed that to protect the vaccine. So everything was in place. And in fact, I said, if it had been anything other than a coronavirus, would they have been able to make vaccines that quickly? And well, you mentioned yeah. the vaccine center, but, but one of the interesting things about your article is it wasn't just at the vaccine center. There were scientists around the world who had been working on related problems in terms of the viruses and the, and the vaccines. And to some extent, I suppose they knew about the work each was doing, but to some extent they didn't. How did it start to come together together? Uh, well, it, it, it wasn't really coordinated in that way. Actually, a lot of the work was either sponsored by the NIH or was done at the Vaccine Research Center. So when we say scientists around the world, for example, at one point, the Vaccine Research Center people contacted some people in China who were testing thousands of antibodies in, against one of these viruses. But they were... They, 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 a lot of this work, seriously, was done, was coordinated out of or funded out of the National Institutes of Health. It was amazing, and it sort of went on, sort of unheralded. A lot of the, a lot of the, the, the important papers had a lot of trouble being published. Journals didn't think they were of any interest. It turned out they were of amazing interest once we needed. And if that. they don't get published, other scientists may not even know about the work that's being done. Oh yeah, some of the some of the crucial stuff was it was amazing how major journals were turning these people down. But it wasn't, you know, in in retrospect you'd say this was so important, but at the time it seemed so esoteric. It didn't seem like it was going to have a practical use. So there was a lot of a lot of blind alleys, a lot of years of of work that was seemed to be going nowhere, a lot of discoveries that seemed unimportant at the time. And it was kind of incredible that 
when this pandemic got started, everything was in place for vaccines to be made and tested. They knew exactly how to do it, and they knew and they were able to test them right away. But it was it wasn't through any great great master plan. And in fact, the search for an HIV vaccine, as I just mentioned, still goes on. This is, you know, really, you put your finger on something very important about basic science, that uh, often people labor for years and years in their labs uh, without necessarily getting recognition and without uh, necessarily seeing immediate profound results. Um, There's a to be a basic scientist, I think you have to be patient and dedicated and have a huge uh, amount of sort of stick to Um Now, when the COVID virus... Sometimes it was years getting nowhere. Sure. I mean, absolutely nowhere. And you wonder, how can they stand it? Tell us about a couple of the people that, that you looked at who were important in this in the development of the virus. One of them, he's sort of a central character in our story, is Barney Graham. And he, like many of these people, got interested in HIV because he was um, an internist. He was actually a chief resident at Vanderbilt Hospital, just starting his chief residency. And the homeless man came into the emergency room, was really, really sick, had all sorts of things wrong with him. And he was discharged, and then he came back. And at this time, the, the CDC had just... Started, talking, started publishing something saying there's this new disease. that they, It wasn't called AIDS at the time, but it's called AIDS now. And they said, I wonder if this guy has it. And they looked at his lab test, and he had every infection possible. He was so ill. He was delirious. He was hallucinating. And he had so, so, many, so many infections, it was hard to believe. They kept him alive for eight days, but he died. And then when, after that, that was like the beginning of one patient after another after another coming in with this disease. And Barney Graham was really kind of horrified and wanted to do something. So he spoke to people in his in his hospital and said, I want to become a virologist. How do I do it? He went back and he started doing lab work to learn how to be a virologist. And that was sort of what got him started. And when the Vaccine Research Center was was getting underway, Dr. Fauci knew his work and said, I want him for one of the first people. He was one of the leaders in this endless, seemingly endless, basic research quest to try to understand these viruses, what part of them would you want to have a vaccine directed against, and how would you even isolate that part because these these viruses have these ways of trying to hide themselves from any any antibodies that are going to get them. And there was a Dr. Kitalenko, I believe. Am I saying it right? Carico. Oh, yeah, I was going to get to she. It was also amazing. I mean, all these people were just, you know, just incredibly dedicated. They're heroes. Yeah, they were. They are heroes. She um, was from Hungary. She came to the United States. She was always interested in so-called messenger RNA, which is a piece of genetic material that takes instructions from the DNA where the genes are and brings it to the protein-making machinery in the cell. She was starting work in Hungary, and her her institute, she was really just beginning, really. She'd gotten a Ph.D., and her institute ran out of money and just sort of closed all of its research. So she and her husband and her little girl came to the United States, and her husband 
ended up working as a maintenance man at apartment buildings, and she started trying to get jobs in science, and she ended up at the University of Pennsylvania. She never had a permanent job, never had any sort of um, job security. The only way she could stay on is if she could find a laboratory with a scientist who would take her into his lab and sort of support her with his lab funds that she could work there. She never made much money, but she loved what she was doing. She got rejection after rejection, and she always said, well, you know, I just took that as an incentive to just work harder. She couldn't get things published. She couldn't get grants. It was it, it was surprising me she would even keep going, but she did. So she um, she eventually, after she was about to be, like, having have no job at all because her mentor had left Penn for another job and she was searching for a lab where somebody would keep her on. She was standing at a Xerox machine one day and she met a guy who had recently been hired from the NIH by Penn. His name was Drew Weissman and he wanted to make, guess what, an HIV vaccine. So they got up, they started speaking and he said to her, um, and she said, he said, I want to make an HIV vaccine. And she said, well, you know, I can do anything with messenger RNA. I'm an mRNA scientist. He said, could you make an HIV vaccine? She said, oh, yeah, of course. Well, of course, it's not that easy, not even close to that easy. And she, they ended up working for seven years because they discovered that if they injected messenger RNA into cells, the cells thought it was something foreign. They thought it's like a virus trying to get in, and they destroyed it immediately. So the question was, how do you protect it so that the cells don't eat it up right away? After seven years of one failure after another, they finally discovered that there is a, a small chemical modification that cells naturally make to their own mRNA so that it's not destroyed. And if they did that, then they could inject mRNA into cells and it wouldn't be destroyed. They tried to publish. Nobody wanted the paper. They didn't think it was interesting. Finally, they got it published in a not very prominent journal and nobody paid any attention. And yet, that was one of the key discoveries that was needed for making the vaccine. You had to make that modification to the mRNA. And her name is again? They call her Katie, is what she calls herself, Carico. Uh, And I think if I read in an earlier article last year when she went in to get her own vaccine uh, against COVID, she uh, someone who had been so fundamental to developing the vaccine that – and I can't remember where she went in, uh, which center, but she went in. I wrote the story. You wrote the story. Well, tell us what happened. (laughs) Well, she was – yeah, she's she's just a practical person and not very emotional, but all the all the all the um, doctors and nurses who were there too to get their first dose of the vaccine, they started clapping, and of course she started crying as anybody would. That's what you're thinking of. I was indeed, um, but and you know you say so seven years. People, this was yeah, seven years. Seven years so of like, trial and error, trial and error until they finally came up with it. I think it sort of paints a picture of what the patience it takes to be a basic scientist, that you can't oh just gosh. go into a lab and, aha, all of a sudden you're going to have this miraculous discovery. It seems to me that anybody that reads that story and wants to be a scientist would think twice. 
mean, that's how it seems to me. They they work hard, long hours, endless hours trying to to solve a problem. It may never have any relevance to anything. That's and they didn't. They were not doing it because they thought they were making a COVID vaccine or they were solving this problem for for coronaviruses that would later turn out to save the world. They that wasn't their thought. So it's hard. And and there's I'm sure. I know that there are a lot of scientists doing this same kind of tedious work all the time. And their their studies go nowhere and actually never turn out to be relevant, which is kind of incredible. But even null results or, or getting negative results can often point the way to the right direction. But it may be that it doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, these people, when they couldn't publish their papers, if we didn't have a coronavirus pandemic, it probably wouldn't have mattered. That's what's so incredible about this. Now, you mentioned that these uh, two scientists met over a Xerox machine or something or something like the water yeah, cooler. That's right. um, yeah. During COVID, people have not been able to see each other uh, in conferences and such things. Uh, um, it's all been done online. Do you think that's affected the basic science community in terms of these sort of serendipitous kind of connections? Um, it's hard for me to say because I'm not a basic scientist. I don't know. I mean, you would think it had to have, but a lot of people work anyway. I mean, they came into the lab and they worked. I've heard a lot of people saying our lab just kept going. People came in, they were masked. I mean, my my office closed down. That doesn't mean all the labs closed down. One one of the uh, one of the the facts is that many of these labs are staffed by people from other countries around the world who've come to the, to the United States. And uh, this is a side issue, but but it's an important issue. I think uh, there has been a uh, focus now on Chinese researchers in the ba- uh, in the basic sciences. Um, first beginning the Trump administration and continuing the Biden administration about whether or not these researchers are, quote-unquote, stealing information to take back to China. There was recently an MIT scientist whose work and life has essentially been completely disrupted when he was charged with with doing this, and then the prosecution ended up dropping all the charges, and but his lab is now completely destroyed. Um, what is your take on this? How are we going to be open to the scientists from around the world and yet protect some of our own intellectual property? That's a really difficult and complicated issue. And I wrote about that, too, with my colleague Ellen Barry because some of the first cases, um, they they were out of MD Anderson. And what they had there is they had the – there's a, there's a program in China called the Thousand Talents Program. And if you are there, they recruit scientists, and part of the job, what they're supposed to do, is to take, is to get research information, important technical information, and provide it to China. So a lot of these people in this program, so I'm just, I'm just trying to say it's not as easy as, oh, the poor person is being targeted mm-hmm. because some people were, but some of the people, a lot of people, when they were discovered, through emails, you hard to believe people put things like this in emails, saying things like, you know, I managed to get some test tubes of this and this, and I'm going to get it on the plane to you, or here's here's a grant proposal, don't spread it around, but it has the information you need. Um, really, really damning stuff. And a lot of people, 
when they were asked about it, they left the country. So it's not some people. Some people like this poor guy at MIT really suffered. And I guess the balance, the challenge is to try to say, if people are in fact scientific, doing scientific espionage essentially, then of course you want to prosecute them. It is going to be a but real challenge. If they're an innocent person, sure. then you know, yeah, there's all sorts of of regulations that people have to follow, and they may not know what they all are, like this guy in, it's, at MIT. And it's going to be a challenge realize. because keeping the openness, which which we've talked about in this show today, about which helped produce the vaccine as quickly, people, scientists from around the world really co- collaborating versus uh, the loss of in, intellectual property. Now, we just have two minutes left, and I thought I would just – you probably get asked because people know that you're the top science writer. You probably get asked by a lot of people, should I be afraid of this vaccine or, or so and so my family isn't getting the vaccine because they're afraid of it. What are some of the things that you tell them? Um, if anybody asked me, I would say that there's, that ev- I am not a scientist and neither are most of us. And all I can do is say that if Everybody that I respect, all the scientists, all the public health people, say that the evidence shows it's totally that it's safe and extremely effective. The data show that people who are vaccinated are are well protected from hospitalizations and deaths, the things we really fear. Then I would trust that, and I would say, you know, if you say, well, I want to do my own research, I would say I couldn't do my own research because I am not a scientist. I have to trust the, the consensus of leading scientists and public health officials who say, yes, this is you absolutely should get this vaccine. It doesn't make sense not to. What on earth are you? Why wouldn't you get it? I can tell you that I'm vaccinated. I'm boosted. Everybody in our house is vaccinated. I mean, that's, you have to do, I mean, well, you, I don't think you've that. been in this field a long, long time and, uh, at the highest level. So it sounds like you have a, a real trust in the scientists. I want to thank you for being on the show and I hope people will, con- you'll continue writing and people will continue reading the articles you write because they're t- fantastic. Thank you, Miss Gina Collada and earlier. Thank you to Dr. Mohsani Sajadi. Please join us next week. Until then, be kind to yourselves. Please be kind to others and stay warm out there. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being on your show. Today with Dr. Lewis Myers, brought to you in part by AgeWell Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Westview Meadows and the Gary Residence, retirement living the way it's meant to be. Kinney Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com, employee owned and locally committed. Northfield Pharmacy, pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. NorthfieldPharmacy.com. The music for this program was written and produced by Armin Bayajan.